Exploring the intersection of liberty and character. Welcome to the Reed Hour with Lawrence W. Reed. Welcome, everyone, to the Reed Hour. This is your host, Lawrence Reed, from the Foundation for Economic Education. Proud to be broadcasting on the Loving Liberty Network. And in this first segment, as is our custom, my producer, Brian Hyde, and I talk about a particular hero. So let me say welcome, Brian. Good to be back on the show again this week. Well, and I'm, I'm anxious for uh, I'm anxious to get better acquainted with this hero as well. I believe it or not, I brushed up against this one before. Um, you've chosen a famous economist this week who, who died back in 1973. Who is this economist and, and what uh, what's relevant about this week to him? Okay, yeah, and one of my favorite all-time people, though I never met him, his name was Ludwig von Mises. He was born in what is now Ukraine, uh, taught at the University of Vienna in Austria, and is the premier uh, advocate for the Austrian School of Economics, even though he's been gone since 1973. He remains the most preeminent Austrian school economist within the field of economics. And I think uh, very fairly uh, one of, and some of us believe perhaps the uh, best economists of the uh, 20th century. Ludwig von Mises is his name. And let me just add a little uh, side note here, Brian. You know, all of us have probably looked up at one time or another uh, online or elsewhere to see uh, what famous people share a birthday with us. And I'm very proud of the fact that my birth date is the same as that of Ludwig von Mises, the 29th of September. Uh, he was born in 1881 and me many decades later, but we share the same birth date. <laughs> okay, just going to make a quick note of that, the 29th. Okay. So let's talk about the Austrian School of Economics. I know that some people are going to be familiar with this, but for for those who don't know, what distinguishes it from from other economic schools of thought? Okay. It gets its name, the Austrian School, because its chief advocates, uh, including the very first Austrian school economist, Karl Menger, uh, hailed from Vienna. Uh, most uh, taught at the University of Vienna, uh, those early generations of Austrian school economists. But today, Austrian economists are all over the world. I'm an Austrian economist, uh, one who analyzes economic phenomena in uh, within the perspective of the Austrian methodology, the Austrian school. Most Austrian economists today have probably never been to Austria. It's not a country that uh, precisely practices what uh, Austrian economists always uh, would uh, suggest, but it is a free country. So we we, we still love Austria, uh, but the, that name just simply derives from the fact that the early economists of this school came from from Vienna. Uh, it has some distinguishing features, of course, that make it uh, somewhat different from other schools of thought. Uh, and by the way, people should keep in mind that. Uh, when I say school of thought, I don't mean to suggest that this is some little obscure corner of economics uh, that uh, nobody else talks about or talks to. I mean, it's like Christianity. You know, you have within Christianity, you kind of have schools of thought. You have Catholicism, you have Protestantism. And of course, within those schools, so to speak, you have many denominations. So in a sense, economics is that way, too, as is uh, many uh, a social science. The Austrian school, uh, I think, more so than any other perspective in economics, stresses the importance of the individual. 
so rigorously, in fact, that we often use the term uh, methodological individualism. That's a mouthful, methodological individualism, which means we study the economy from the standpoint of the individual, the individual person, because we think every economic phenomenon, uh, you know, trade cycles, uh, employment, uh, growth of uh, the economy, all these things that we talk about within economics, they really, uh, to fully understand them, should be traced back to the ultimate uh, decision-making entity in society, and that's the individual. Now, that puts us at odds often with those who have a more collective analysis and who use terms like, you know, oh, society is doing this or, or the business world thinks that. You know, those things don't think and act. They are abstractions. They are collective terms. But in the real world, all actions, all phenomena uh, emanate from the original source of all thought and decisions, and that is the individual. So we study as Austrian economists how individual values uh, come to play in the marketplace, interact with the values of others, produce things like prices and exchange and investment and employment. Um, and so that's, a, that's one of the most distinctive features of our school. We're very individual focused. Now, I understand that Mises wrote a book back in 1922 entitled Socialism. And we still hear a lot of talk about socialism. Yeah. How, how well would his observations hold up in our time? You know, uh, what is meant by socialism hasn't always remained the same. In fact, <laughs> there's a curious phenomenon whereby people who call themselves socialists uh, sort of uh, shift with uh, changing circumstances. You know, one day socialism is central planning of the economy, and then when that uh, is proven to be a flop, then they say, oh, well, no, it's uh, really more like uh, welfare state stuff. That's what we're talking about. But at the time that uh, Ludwig von Mises wrote his fantastic book in 1922 called Socialism, socialism was widely understood to mean central planning of the economy, government ownership of a good portion, if not all, of the means of production, uh, and not just welfare state stuff, uh, which it sometimes means today, but actual uh, government direction of the economy instead of things like supply and demand, prices, uh, private contracts, uh, uh, enterprise, consumers, and so forth that we talk about in the free economy today. So when he wrote Against Socialism in 1922, that's what he was talking about. And he inaugurated a great debate within the economics profession. It's called to this day the calculation debate. It was Mises who proved beyond a shadow of a doubt and now almost a century later, it still remains unanswered, effectively unanswered by the hardcore socialists, that socialism is irrational. Uh, it cannot calculate in the sense that, uh, you know, once you've abolished or largely abolished private property and prices no longer reflect uh, changing personal values and uh, things like supply and demand, if they're just a dictate by the state, well, the state is at sea without a rudder. Uh, it, it, it's, it can't calculate the real comparative values of this versus that or here versus there, uh, where investments should be made, what produces the greatest uh, return, because prices don't mean anything anymore. Prices are dictated by the state instead of arriving or arising out of the free interplay of personal choice and supply and demand. Uh, th that's just a quick thumbnail sketch, but he basically showed that uh, once you abolish free prices and private property, 
and try to set up socialist direction, central direction of the economy, uh, you you are at sea without a rudder. And that's why socialist countries pile up surpluses of this and shortages of that. Uh, they just don't know what belongs where because their prices are meaningless. I love it. Tell me about what happened to Mises in the years just before World War II. Well, he, of course, uh, had been in Vienna for uh, much of the period before World War II. Uh, and uh, on the eve of World War II, or not long before, he uh, took a position in Geneva, Switzerland, though his uh, 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 Friends and acquaintances and students were largely still back in Vienna. But he knew the danger uh, because uh, he was very outspokenly against uh, all forms of socialism, whether they be of the Nazi variety uh, or of the communist variety. And so he was in some ways a marked man, but he was also Jewish. And uh, so uh, Jews certainly by 1939, before World War II broke out, certainly knew of the danger of being uh, in Hitler's way. Uh, and of course, when Hitler took Austria, uh, Mises uh, was out of the country at the time, couldn't go back safely, ultimately brought um, uh, the woman who became his wife over to Geneva, and he made his way eventually in 1940 to the United States. He didn't feel once Hitler had invaded France that even Switzerland would necessarily be safe. So they came to America in 1940, and he became an American citizen a few years later, and uh, this was his home until his death in 1973. Now, I understand that the Foundation for Economic Education has had a very long and close relationship with Mises. That's right. Uh, one of the very first people within the first month of his arrival in 1940 in New York uh, was a man also long associated with fee uh, who became later one of our first trustees, Henry Hazlitt, great economist. Uh, and uh, uh, in later years, when fee was founded in 1946, Mises uh, was placed on the staff within the first year, even as he was teaching at New York University. Uh, he was doing seminars at fee and lectured uh, right up until the early 1970s at our old head, uh, headquarters in Irvington, New York. That's a pretty respectable pedigree. Yes, it is. And I would encourage listeners, if you want to know more about Mises, his last name is spelled M-I-S-E-S, -S, just visit the FEE website, FEE.org, and type in his name, and you'll find a lot of articles by him and articles about him. M-I-S-E-S, -S, Ludwig von Mises, great economist. Welcome back, everybody, to the Reed Hour, uh, broadcasting on the Loving Liberty Network. This is your host, Lawrence Reed. I'm here today with a special guest. As you know, many of you who are veteran listeners know that I'd like to spotlight uh, great writers on the website feefee.org, the website of the Foundation for Economic Education. And one of those uh, great youthful writers is Dr. Laura Williams. Laura teaches communication strategy to undergraduates and executives. She's a passionate advocate for critical thinking, individual liberties, and the Oxford comma. We're going to ask her about that in just a moment. She's the author of many articles on fee.org, several this very month that deal with environmental issues, 
they will be the focus of most of our discussion over the next uh, 40 minutes or so. Welcome to the Read Hour, Laura Williams. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be speaking with you. How's uh, President Emeritus lifestyle treating you? <laughs> well, people are finally beginning to pronounce that word correctly. I First few introductions uh, from, from uh, various podiums, I was introduced as President Emeritus. And I had to oh, people, no, no, no. That I, sounds contagious. Yeah, I take medication for that. But it, the title is <laughs> President Emeritus. And it's great. It gives me more time to write and to do things like this radio show. So, again, thank you for being uh, on the show today, Laura. And before we get into some of the environmental, environmental issues that you recently wrote about, uh, tell our listeners what the Oxford comma is that you are so passionate about. <laughs> yes, it's an underappreciated beauty. Uh, the <laughs> Oxford University Press first standardized the use of the serial comma, which appears between the last two items in any list. So Mental Floss Magazine told the story of a book that was, quote, dedicated to my parents, comma, Ayn Rand and God. <laughs> so that is either a missing Oxford comma or a very interesting family. It seems like the convention has uh, shifted on this from time to time. I, I think I learned years ago in school that you put that comma in there. And then I was told later, no, 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 now we don't do that. Take it out. I still tend to put it in myself uh, most of the time. So that should make you proud. <laughs> I appreciate the support. And it may be the one thing I align with the CIA about. Oh, really? <laughs> the black ops are crimes against humanity, but the style guide is impeccable. <laughs> okay, I can quote you on that, I assume. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, in the second and third segments of today's show, Laura, uh, we'll be talking about your articles, and I want the listeners to know now what the titles were, are so that they uh, know the, know the uh, forthcoming subjects we'll talk about. One is the unseen costs of the climate alarmism uh, that we see today uh, being paid by the global poor. And the other one is the Amazon fire alarm is unwarranted. With Amazon fires in the news recently, I think uh, many listeners will be interested in that. But in this first segment, uh, let's discuss the article you wrote headlined, Four Catastrophic Climate Predictions That Never Came True. I know that global cooling was one of them, and I remember when that was in the news 40 years ago. Uh, what was all that about? It's hard to believe now, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, top climate specialists, specialists in the 1970s claimed that the world was cooling and had been cooling since World War II and was going to get as much as 11 degrees colder by the year 2000, which was going to usher us all into a new ice age. <laughs> and the media dutifully repeated those predictions. There were supposed to be bitter winters and it would be too, go too cold to grow food and widespread famine. Uh, I wasn't old enough, of course. I wasn't even born. But do you remember the Newsweek cover with the little penguin? Oh, yes, if America I do. was ready for another ice age? Yes, I do. That was, what, about 1975 or 6, thereabouts, as I recall? Something like that. Yep, yep. Well, that one never came uh, true. And the, the second prediction that you wrote about, in some sense, is even, even more ridiculous. But you called it the Great Die-Off. The scientist who made that prediction uh, is, is a fairly well-known name, uh, Paul Ehrlich. He's still among the living. Uh, and he said not so long ago, uh, quote, 
This is from your article. At least 100 to 200 million people per year will be starving to death during the next 10 years. And that was to be between 1970 and 1980. So that should have happened like 30 years or, or 40 years ago. Tell us about that uh, Paul Ehrlich prediction and maybe a word or two about his track record. You don't remember that happening? He was so sure. <laughs> I don't remember that as vividly as I do the global cooling uh, one, but I, I do know that he was front and center on this. Yes, and a best-selling author because of it. But Ehrlich was not the first one to be this wrong. He was just wrong at a time when we reported it more widely than we had been reporting it up till then. He was continuing essentially Thomas Malthus's speculation about carrying capacity mm -hmm. that food production couldn't possibly keep up with population growth. And each of Dr. Ehrlich's claims really should have ended with, if nothing changes. <laughs> yeah. And, and then does. they might have been more respectable. <laughs> well, but what course, happened? Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, of course, things always do change. Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, what does happen to uh, people who make these phenomenal predictions and that, that go completely bust? I mean, it looks so absurd. We have so many more people on the, on the planet today than we had back then. So not only did we not have the 200 million die off because we couldn't support them, but we have so many more who live so much higher than the average person 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's right. And there have been so many innovations in particularly seed production and irrigation that many of the countries that um, Ehrlich said we should just write off, we can't possibly save India, it'll never feed itself, we should triage the entire subcontinent and let them starve, was essentially his argument. Um, and they've become net food exporters less than a decade after he made that wow. statement. He, his special area of study was, I believe, butterfly research. <laughs> okay. But he has failed upward to an almost laughable degree. He now holds an endowed chair at Stanford in population studies. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> population of butterflies or people? Uh, people. Oh and the most needed work in that field is arguably study of the damage done to populations by tyrants who listen to Ehrlich's predictions. Oh, my gosh. It, it probably still commands uh, high speaking fees if he's on the lecture circuit, I would guess, too. In spite Almost of certainly. Uh, well, we have about a minute and a half before we break. Uh, Laura, I wanted to ask you about another failed prediction uh, that you wrote about, and that concerns species extinction. What was that prediction? And even though it didn't happen, isn't this still an issue we ought to worry about, the extinct extinction of entire species on the planet? We were supposed to lose a fairly large percentage of species uh, between the 1980s and the 1990s. There's always a background level of extinction. About 99.9% .9 of all species who've ever lived on the planet have gone extinct. Several hundred go extinct each year, whether we do anything about it or not. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason that species that we've designated as endangered during our lifetime should be uniquely exempt from that global trend or that natural order. Yeah, and I, I don't think we should miss a lot of those either. I mean, uh, I, I don't uh, stay up awake uh, at night worrying about the absence of pterodactyls, for instance. I would guess a lot of those species, we should be thankful that uh, they're gone, right? <laughs> 
Oh, I don't know that we have to attribute any uh, <laughs> any value to the ones we lose or the ones we don't. I wouldn't mind seeing a dodo in a zoo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, I'd make an exception for that, <laughs> for the dodo. <laughs> I don't think they did much harm. Well, uh, Laura Williams, let's take a break. And after this uh, commercial interlude, we will be back and to talk to talk. And fantastic articles. Thank you, Laura. We'll be right back. Discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to the Read Hour. We're in the second of three segments of an interview with my guest today, Laura Williams. Laura Williams, who lives here in Atlanta, Georgia, teaches communication strategy to undergraduates and executives. She's a passionate advocate for things like critical thinking and individual liberties, the author of many articles at fee.org, including three related to environmental issues that we're talking about today. Now, Laura, in our first segment, you explained some spectacular predictions that didn't happen like uh, global cooling and massive population die-off that was supposed to happen, according to one guy, uh, way back in the 1970s. And as embarrassing as those predictions might have been for those who made them, there's no shortage these days of, of wild and alarming forecasts about the future of the climate. In your article about the unseen costs of climate alarmism, you pointed out that there are real victims of this alarmism, and I'd like you to explain who are those victims of, of this uh, crazy uh, alarmist rhetoric and, and faulty predictions? Yeah, so you'd think that these experts would be more embarrassed, or at least less respected, but it doesn't seem to happen. So the real victims are often those who uh, were using a certain resource in a certain way because that suited them best and are told that they can't use that resource anymore. Uh, do you remember avian flu? Oh, yeah. The UN claimed that H5N1 would kill millions of people in 2005. Yep, bird flu, chicken flu. Yeah, it went by various yep. names, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was somewhere between SARS, swine flu, and Ebola on the rolling chart of things we're supposed to be afraid of next. But every time we have one of these supposed emergencies, researchers are told to divert precious resources away from far more serious health problems. Ultimately, about 300 people died from the avian flu, which is somewhere around a tenth of the lives we lose to malaria every day. Mm. But we produced a lot of vaccine in a short amount of time. We used a lot of researchers' time and attention on something that turned out not to be a very realistic threat and took all of those resources away from where they were needed elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
So in country after country, if you're already a wealthy person or politically well-connected and something comes along such as uh, an epidemic, I mean, you, you can take precautions that poor people cannot. You can even leave the country. So if the predictions prove to be wrong or if the resources uh, devoted uh, to them are out of balance with where they really ought to be uh, uh, deployed for good advantage, then it's not the rich so much that get hurt. It's the poor, right? Absolutely. Um, 2007, shortly thereafter, the U.S. made a major push toward ethanol fuels, and there were what's known as the tortilla riots in Mexico. They couldn't understand how we were literally burning food when people didn't have enough to eat. It pushes up corn prices when you divert the resource somewhere else, and then people who are depending on corn for something other than a fuel uh, have nowhere to get it. Yeah. And this is a basic elemental principle of economics, isn't it? That there are trade-offs, that we live in a world of scarce resources and unlimited wants, and that at least in the short term, until you produce more, uh, that uh, a diversion of resources away from this uh, and in that direction uh, means that somebody, some people, some causes uh, that are quite worthy may not uh, benefit. They may be actually hurt if the diversion of resources uh, are in political directions or uh, simply wrong for one reason or another. Absolutely. Resources are much less scarce than they've been at any time in human history, and we still don't have enough of anything to do all the things we want to do. So yeah. anytime we're wasting resources, those resources could have done something useful and exactly. instead won't be. Now, for the sake of the planet, uh, these days, we are told every day uh, in one way or another in the schools, in the major media, that we should eat uh, meatless burgers, or uh, we should drive electric cars, or we should ban plastic straws. I mean, the, the list is endless. What's wrong with a lot of that stuff, if, if anything? Maybe, maybe you're for them. <laughs> I'm for people making their choices about what to prioritize. I think they would do well to think beyond the initial step. So when Starbucks chucked plastic straws, they had adopted a strawless lid that actually uses more plastic. Ah. And electric cars aren't zero emissions. We feel righteous when we bypass the gas station, but the electricity that runs your vehicle relies on a coal-burning power plant across town. You're not really saving the emissions so much as you're moving them away from yourself. So these sorts of behavior changes are the equivalent of wearing a button or a ribbon in a specific color. It's a signal to other people of what you care about, but at best it raises awareness. You're not doing anything constructive, you're just sending that signal. Plus you get those soggy pieces of paper straw in your mouth, I hate that. <laughs> well, maybe that answers my next question, but thinking back to what you said about uh, Starbucks uh, shifting away from plastic straws, but in the end using a new lid that actually consumes or uses more plastic, why didn't some of the activists who pushed them to abandon plastic straws in the first place, why didn't they seem to care about uh, this, the new lid that uses more plastic. They just stick with these causes long enough to score a little victory, and then they move on to the next and without uh, thinking of the consequences at all? I think that tends to be how it happens. We get a little quick hit of dopamine for being part of the in crowd and doing the thing that is now designated as social responsibility, regardless of whether it actually creates any kind of change. 
Yeah, you see that sometimes uh, with recycling too. That's uh, in some corners uh, virtually a religion these days. And uh, I know there have been uh, reports uh, pretty wide around the country from time to time about uh, places that have a recycling program and people go to the trouble of sorting stuff out, putting them in different bins, and then ultimately it all ends up in the same landfill anyway. But <laughs> nobody seems to care once they've done their duty at the end of the curb. Right. Because it's very much about getting people to identify with that kind of change. I'm the kind of person who decided not to use my plastic straws anymore. And that's a way of recruiting people to your cause at a very low cost. Maybe they're more likely to take the next more significant sacrificial step if you've already gotten them on sorting their recycling. Well, if I admit that sorting my recycling or using my plastic or not using my plastic straw is pointless, then I have to give up my membership in the in crowd. So I must follow through. <laughs> That's right. Even and if you, I know it makes no sense. And to the in crowd, all too often, what's most important is not actual outcomes or effects, uh, but rather uh, good intentions. You know, as long as they just beat their breasts and say, I mean well, <laughs> uh, that's as deep as it often gets, sadly. So true. Now, you wrote in your article, I again, want to mention the title so that people can look it up on fee.org. The unseen costs of climate alarmism are paid by the global poor. You wrote, quote, wealthier people are more able to cope with climate change and are overall less likely to die from all natural causes than the very poor. Uh, we touched on this already, but many people may not, may not fully appreciate the significance of that statement. So perhaps you can elaborate in the remaining time we have in this segment, which is about two minutes. Okay. Yes, lots of people think of wealth as money, but the value of wealth is more choices. When people die in floods, whether it's in Indonesia or it's in New Orleans, it's because they don't know the flood's coming or they don't have the ability to get away from the shore fast. If yep. people die of diseases, like we said, it's not just because they get infected, but because they don't have the wealth to get adequate medical treatment. If people die during drought, it's because they lack the funds to build a well down to groundwater or to irrigate their fields. It's not necessarily that you have more money, although money gives you access to more choices. It is indicative that uh, wealthier people in wealthier societies have the ability to combat the effects of any natural cause, especially climate change, more easily. Oh, and that's they can so survive. That's right. And it's so apparent every time a hurricane uh, runs across the Caribbean, uh, even if it's, and especially if it ends up striking the United States, you can have a hurricane go across Haiti and, uh, uh, you know, the property damage compared to what it, the same storm might do in the U.S., where there's a lot more uh, valuable property, may be tiny, but the death toll is uh, usually far higher, that lots more people die because they live in poor countries, can't handle uh, a natural disaster, than is the case in wealthier countries where we have more options. Right. And if they're using flimsy material or don't have good foundations, they'll be devastated by flooding instead of just inconvenienced. Exactly. and having to call their insurance company. Well, Laura Williams, we will be back after another break. And during that final segment, we'll be talking about your other article, uh, the one entitled, let me see, The Amazon Fire Alarm is Unwarranted. Thanks, Laura. We'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the third and final segment of today's edition of the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is Lawrence Reed, your host. I'm talking today uh, to Laura Williams. Dr. Williams teaches communication strategy to undergraduates and executives, and she's also uh, a very eloquent uh, author of articles uh, at fee.org, most recently on several environmental questions. Uh, Laura, let's focus in this last segment on your article about fires in the Amazon. They were in the news uh, a great deal in August and actually led to a very nasty public quarrel between the presidents of Brazil and France. Uh, is the Amazon really burning up right before our eyes? There's an interesting quirk of English. The Amazon is burning, but it is not burning up and it is not burning down. <laughs> but like every other forest in the world, it has a fire season. And this is not a particularly aggressive or out of control or to be worried about fire season. It's uh, actually pretty average and down quite a bit from uh, the maximum burns that happened in the mid 2000s. What we have is the same kind of prescribed burn and land management techniques that happen in America's uh, national parks. So the fire can be healthy for a forest. They've made choices about where to burn, where to clear land, and uh, nothing is out of control. And it, even if the lungs of the planet weren't such a silly turn of phrase, <laughs> it would still be untrue that they were in danger. Yeah, the president of France used that very phrase, uh, referring to the Amazon as the lungs of the planet. Uh, I, I wonder overall, uh, how much less uh, forested uh, land is there in the Amazon than there was some decades ago? I mean, if you look, stand back and look at that bigger picture from a longer period of time, not just one year, should we be concerned that uh, the Amazon is shrinking through such things as fires or over farming or some other reason? No, there is no reason to be worried. In the Amazon, as in the world at large, tree cover is actually increasing. As people get wealthier, they produce food and fuel more efficiently, and they have less need to uh, scavenge either land or wood or food from their surroundings. And uh, more warmer countries are catching up to the cooler, wealthier parts of the world in terms of reforesting their land now that industrial production has made life easier. And the Amazon is already adding tree cover back. Wow. Now, you've in your article, you provide some uh, fascinating numbers and some very convincing evidence uh, that defies uh, the scare talk. But that raises the larger question, why the scare talk? Why does so much alarmist scare talk make it into the daily news? Virtually unchallenged by the major media, it makes its way into the schools. You have kids now graduating from high schools across the country, just scared to death that the planet uh, planet's days are numbered. I mean, why all this scare talk? Well, it's very hard to get headlines or keep people tuned through the next commercial break when you're saying everything is fine. Yeah. From the standpoint of the organizations that produce this kind of alarmist news, which is reported uncritically, almost read directly from the press releases, uh, it's hard to raise money by saying everything is fine and getting better. If you can claim the bigger disaster, you're more likely to get 
media time and you're more likely to get donations funneled towards you as our recent Amazon hysteria proved. I wonder if there's something else going on too, because certainly what you've just described, Laura, is happening. But I don't know that that's all that much different from what it might have been the case 150 years ago, that scare talk probably got a lot of headlines back then, too. Isn't there something more going on today, maybe in the form of an agenda, an ideological uh, perspective that people are using scare talk to help promote a bigger picture going on here, in other words? Absolutely. Fear reduces our ability to evaluate competing ideas. So if those who have power can make the population afraid of something, we'll be more likely to accept whatever they say is necessary to stop the scary thing, to fix the problem. So it's a lot of Washington working as, as usual and as it was designed to do. But if we can insert enough alarmist rhetoric, you could get people to accept it less critically. Yeah. So one of my favorite examples, a few years ago, Philips Electronics uh, backed the Natural Resources Defense Fund to help create the higher energy efficiency standards. Mm -hmm. Now, this functionally banned cheap incandescent light bulbs, which you can get from anywhere in the world for 25 cents. Uh, Philips didn't do it because they care so much about the environment, but they wanted to limit buyers' choices and force them to buy the more complicated, more expensive bulbs that only Philips can make. <laughs> wow, you, can't, that's that. you can't go to Congress and say, we want to make it illegal to buy any light bulbs except ours. But if you can wrap it up in a green agenda and say, uh, you know, only our light bulbs are suitable for saving the future of the planet, then suddenly corporate welfare can be called public good. And you get to prey on people's fears and their good intentions to create whatever kind of change, which is nearly always a reduction in consumer choices. Yeah, and, and you desire. see the, the political left, which approaches public policy issues right from the get-go, from the perspective of wanting to expand the size and the scope of the state, I think they've seized on a lot of this, and they realize, you know, we can't go straight to the public and say, uh, we just like to tax the heck out of uh, business and confiscate their property and redistribute it and give it to our friends and, and put our cronies in charge of planning your life. That would be a tough sell. But if they can go and say, oh, my gosh, we've got these crises all over the world, and there's no way they can be solved if we just sit back and do nothing. So put our guys in charge. I mean, it serves their agenda too on the polit political left, doesn't it? It absolutely does. It, it will always be more control, less choice, less freedom, more centralization. Yep. I'm afraid well, that yeah. ratchet only goes one way. We have a lot of parents I know who listen uh, to this show uh, Laura, and they're probably thinking, hey, I see a lot of this alarmist stuff in, in the texts and in the uh, what my uh, students, my, my sons and daughters are coming home from school telling me they're hearing the teacher say. Uh, what advice do you have for parents who are concerned that their children are being uh, propagandized in school on behalf of these alarmist ideas? Well, first, I would like to reassure parents that I was one of those kids. I was a public school kid in the 1990s. I absolutely sold t-shirts to save the rainforest and watched Captain Planet cartoons where <laughs> big business is the enemy of the earth. And 
came home talking about smog and acid rain and all kinds of things we don't hear about anymore. So to some extent, the alarmist establishment is inescapable. It's not limited to schools. And most of us won't be the doctoral level climatologist who can reasonably challenge the data. Uh, but we, what we can do and what I will always advocate for is watch for patterns in how humans deceive one another. And in fact, how we fool ourselves. So being aware of cognitive biases and logical fallacies and unintended consequences can protect us from a lot of the propaganda being foisted on us. It can at least get us to ask the right questions about what be, what might be motivating people to want to scare us. So if you can talk to your kids about why someone might want them to believe this and you know redirect them to my article about fatalistic predictions that have failed to come true, we can get a longer time horizon on this sort of thing and ask if it's the planet that's burning up or if it's another way that people are figuring out to deceive and control one another. Yeah, good advice, Laura. And to that, I would add one uh, further bit of advice uh, to parents, and that is to try to inculcate in uh, your sons and daughters an optimistic perspective on what free people can accomplish. Instead, kids these days are often taught in school that, you know, disaster is uh, staring us in the face and there's just no answer to it except uh, to, to uh, restrict people and punish people and that kind of thing. Uh, but if we took a more positive perspective, like, hey, you know, maybe, yeah, we got problems, but uh, what solves problems are not slaves, but rather free, innovative, entrepreneurial people who see in, uh, in problems, opportunities uh, for uh, entrepreneurial activity, new discoveries, ways of applying uh, knowledge that can actually solve real people's problems. I wish we had more time, Laura. Uh, you've been a great guest. Laura Williams has been with us today as my guest on The Read Hour. I urge people to visit feefee.org. Just type in the name Laura Williams in the search engine and the articles we've been talking about today will come up as well as others that Laura has written and hopefully will soon write. Thank you again, Laura Williams, for being with me today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. Our pleasure. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.